you're listening to a night dream a night dream podcast well uh, one day I would like to finish the two books I started you're listening to a night dream a night dream podcast The first night dream is called the garden party. This celebration marks a key moment in your neighbour's life. Everyone is gathered in the garden to look back on his life and successes and to think idly about what his successes might mean for the future and the lives that orbit his and everyone around him. Your parents are there and they're pleased to see you or they're just generally pleased, you're not sure. The event falls between proper celebrations and so from above, the party lacks cohesion. Some people are wearing shirts, but you have the feeling they would be wearing them anyway. Your dad is wearing a t-shirt that he liked, but he ironed it to make it more formal. Your mum wears a beautiful, light summer dress. He's frantically topping up people's drinks. It's the host's duty to make sure that everyone is okay, and your dad works tirelessly on the host's behalf. He reacts massively to every new guest, with an enthusiasm impossible for the host to match, without ruining the conversation they are in with the other guests. As the night goes on, it gets darker and darker, and none of the guests have left yet, and you get the feeling that this might be the best bit. Everyone is smoking, some people are drinking coffee, and other people slump forward, stupefied. The quiet guest you spoke to earlier has found an audience. Old friends reminisce and begin to start new conversations, creating new memories. Although you can't know it yet, time is valuable, and tonight you catch glimpses of its worth. Your dad's loud greeting at every guest felt odd to you, but this evening has pushed that smallness further from you. You should have trusted them more. Your parents love to throw parties, and they take it very seriously. And although he will never say it to you, it will become clear that fun is precious a commodity to be worked at and hard for. It's pitch black outside and the table is illuminated by some candles and light from the hallway window. The Ziggs have brought round a nice bottle of vodka and Mr Zig fills a tray with tiny glasses and pours the entire bottle into them. He can sense your excitement and is pleased to see you enjoying his ritual. He passes you the tray and pats you on the back lovingly. The party is separated into different rooms so you walk through, carrying the big round tray. Everyone is pleased to see you. Sleeping people wake up to toast you. And at the time you feel embarrassed to be so loved, but in the future it will make you cry. You sit in the front entrance and drink the last four shots. You are ten and your dad has to carry you home. This next night dream is called The Slippening. One morning you wake up and everything feels the same but different. Everything is slippery and you can't quite put your finger on it. Not so much that you're sliding around the place like a cartoon, but enough that you keep dropping glasses and spilling things. The shower has also become a particularly dangerous place to be. Weeks pass and eventually the news is filled with the news that scientists have discovered that as of two weeks ago, the world is objectively 15% more slippery. Manufacturers everywhere breathe a sigh of relief as they run tests to make their objects roughly 15% grippier. Certain foods go out of fashion, 
Italy and parts of America become the only countries to keep spaghetti noodles. Other countries adopt flatter noodles, and not much else really changes. More people fell over at the start, but now people are just that bit more careful, so the curve of reported accidents begins to smooth again. Most sports are now more fun to watch, and different leagues develop where athletes are allowed to use more slip-resistant equipment, or must make do with their natural, slippier world. You feel a longing for the world before, where you didn't fall over all the time. Eventually someone realises that motors are now efficient enough for perpetual motion to be possible. This doesn't end up improving the world, which you could have guessed before all the slippery stuff started. This night dream is an extension of You Can't Live in Their House. It is called Cornwall. If it looks alright, it must be alright. It isn't, you say. How do you know, he asks. You don't think that either of you know. Wait. Look, he says. At what? Out there. Obviously. The person who never moves has moved. He doesn't believe you. They never move, he says. They did, though. You're sure of it. He asks you to come with him to the ridge to get a closer look. How else could you get a closer look? He looks strangely towards you and says, I've never seen her move before. Normally they don't move, and I need to write this down. He writes something down, and you go. You feel something exciting and fearful in the way he looks back at you before starting to walk. So you ask him, what did you do before I arrived? He tells you that nothing was different. His life was checking the person to see if they moved, to see if she's doing all right. You ask him how long she's sat there, and he doesn't know. He asks you not to talk as you get nearer, and you say that you won't, but you ask him how long she has been sat there, and he says that he doesn't know. The bay opens up as you get nearer. You say how strange it is that from the ridge you can see the entire harbour, but from the cottage you can see just her. He says that he doesn't think she sees anything, and asks you again to keep quiet when you get near her. There is still a way to go, so you ask him how long he's watched her before you arrived. He says a long time, and that it suits him. Right, you say. Nearing the bench, walking behind him, you strain to see her, and before you catch a glimpse of her, you notice a shift in your partner's position. He is soft, but still, not moving. She looks out motionless, unblinking and composed. He too is now unmoving, motionless. You return to the tower and begin to watch them both. No one has ever come to keep you company or help you watch the two of them. Still you watch them. To most people, they're so still that they might as well be invisible. For a time they lived together on the cliff, and one day she left. He wasn't worried, it was just them. There she was, through the window, over the ridge, facing out to sea, transfixed. She had left a note tucked under a candlestick. It read, I do not want to change, so I won't, and I hope you can understand. He didn't, and soon he got bored of watching her. Eventually he left and came back, and she was still there. He moved back in with a carer, and although she had stayed the same, he had not. 
One day after much fretting, the carer lied and said that she moved, although she had not and would never move again. The lie worked and was in hindsight a necessary one. How else could he be fixed by her? Upon returning to the tower, you see two notes, hers and another that read, All I want is to be fixed as she is. The cottage is yours. Goodbye. Sometimes in the right light, they are still visible. This night dream is called The Rats. You've always loved this well. You tell her so, and you ask her if she likes it. She says that she does. Now that the tower is missing its roof, it looks just like a large well, you say. Of course you'd say that. It does, though. You tell her that you used to play here all the time. It's a local landmark. She could ask anyone from the town, and they would know what she meant. You tell her that one day you're going to stand in the tower and take a picture, so the sky looks like the water at the bottom of the well. You can't tell if she's interested, so you keep saying things. You say that you think sometimes it's better not to do things, because once you've done them, they're done, and you can't do them again. Well, you could, but you probably wouldn't. She asks if that is why you never do anything. It's meant to be a joke, but she's right. You try to change the subject and tell her that people think that the well was built before the tower. She asks you which people, and you can't remember, but you definitely heard someone say it. You ask her again if she likes the tower and the well, and she does. How many people do you think have lived here on this hill, you ask her. And before she answers, a stranger's dog runs out into the clearing, chasing something that you can't see. And for a moment you're both scared by the commotion, until it becomes clear that the dog is just doing what dogs do. And you tell her that you wish you lived in the tower, and that you used to hide things there. Only stuff that wouldn't matter if it went missing. Things that were important to you at the time, but not that important. She asks how long your parents have lived here. About 30 years. Up and down, right? The tower goes up and the well goes down. When you were younger, you used to think that anything you put in the desk downstairs would be taken by the man who used to live there. When was that, she says. You don't remember when you first heard the rumour, but you still think that it happened when you were younger. Oh, she says. Somehow you don't ask her anything about herself. Being there by the tower muddles you. You tell her that the rumour is true. You used to check in the holidays and whatever you left would always go. Eventually the desk went in a fire and a few summers later you found the metal handle to one of the drawers in a fire pit by the log benches. You think the tower once had three floors. You stop for a drink on the walk home and the presence of real things quietens your childish mood. She is happier inside the pub, but a part of you still hasn't left the space by the tower. You tell her that you and your friends used to call yourselves the rats, and whenever you met, one of you would throw something into the well, so the other rats knew that you had been there. She asks why you chose the rats. The final night dream of the episode is called You Want an Espresso Machine, which is my favourite episode of the season. I am alive, my sweetheart. I am no longer dead, he says, but you don't trust him. You think back to the coffin and your head starts to hurt. Twelve large nails hammered down into the lid to keep it shut forever. You never did look inside. Why should you have to? You remember how, in the dead of night, you would both stand in the kitchen as he made you coffees. 
They took a long time to make and always tasted exactly the same. You would stand and chat like you are now, and as you leant on the kitchen counter, you would run your hands over the laminate. You thought you would miss the old house, but as soon as it went, your feelings locked into place and have remained unchanged. The house sits smothered in amber, the people are static. We would sleep in the same room, and you loved these people. The moss that grew on the outside of the window, the stuff that sat in piles in every room in the old house. It's been so long, you say, and as you say the words, or as the words come out of your mouth, you're unsure if you mean them apologetically, or if you say them with the same conviction of a character at the end of a film. Just as you rarely make the time, neither do they. It doesn't make you sad, but it does a bit. Everything changes, even if you don't understand why. You can't compare the feeling. Submerging your head in the bath, echoes and nudges of the outside world still exist, but stay behind. A full but gently deafening feeling that you could both happily endure forever, but must stop immediately. The heat is overwhelming, and the first breath upon surfacing is unparalleled. And at this moment, you know that whatever happens in your life, you will never do anything that you don't want to do. This idea echoes throughout time and anchors itself to you. The next time you see him, you say, you make resolutions when you are strong, then can't keep them when you are weak. 